Church, this morning, I'm excited to bring the Word to you today. Man, I believe in the preaching of the Word of God. I believe in it. The Bible says it is the foolishness of preaching by which men hear and receive the Word and are saved. Say, what has this dude got to say to me today? I don't have anything to say to you, but God brought you here to say something to you today. And I am privileged and excited to get to be the foolish man that gets to stand up here and bring it to you. I'm so excited. This is what we call a one-off message. Last night before service started, Michael, our media guy, he said, Pastor Blake, is this going to be a throwaway message? I said, well, I hope not. He goes, no, 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 not throwaway. I mean like a one-off, like we're not in a series right now. We're going to be starting a series after Father's Day on a summer of prayer. We're going to be looking at prayer throughout the rest of the summer. So today is going to be what we call a one-off, but truly, it's sort of part two of what Pastor Brian brought to us last week. If you aren't familiar with our church and with our online platform, we are on YouTube, or you can find us on the web at live.eastlandlife.com. I want to encourage all of you. If you didn't hear Pastor Brian's message from last week, you need to go back and check that out. You can go to YouTube, search Eastland Life Church. You will see his pretty face right there on the thumbnail. You click on that. You can see that message. He brought us a word of God from the word of God about God's purpose in our suffering and in our pain. Now, I'll tell you, there's a lot of things I'd love to be able to bring to you today. I would love to be able to bring you the good news that, hey, if you receive Jesus, all your pain and all your suffering just sort of goes away. And the more faith you have, the less pain and suffering you'll have. And if you can have enough faith, you'll live the good life. You'll live your best life. I'd love to tell you that. But the truth is, I don't have the freedom to tell you that because God's Word doesn't actually teach that. God's Word has a different message for us, and I want to bring that to you today. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 if you want to go ahead and get prepared to turn there. But I want to pose a question to us today. Has anybody in the room, and I want you all to participate with me today, you can just raise your hand or you can say amen. Anybody in the room ever, ever had your faith in Jesus Christ or your belief in God the Father? Anybody ever had that questioned or challenged? How can you believe that? Why do you believe that? One of the most famous arguments, it's been around now for hundreds of years, against the idea of an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving God goes something like this. Perhaps somebody has brought this to you, or perhaps you've had this thought or feeling on the inside. It's called the problem of pain, or the problem of suffering, or the problem of evil. It's got a few different names, but it sounds a little something like this. Bruce, I don't know how you believe that God is all-loving and all-powerful when all this pain and suffering exists all over the world. Because logic would tell us that if God is all-good or all-loving and He is also all-powerful, an all-good and an all-loving and an all-powerful God would never allow suffering and evil to exist in the world. And that sort of sounds right, doesn't it? Why would an all-good and an all-loving God want there to be suffering? So the conclusion that this question may bring you to logically sounds something like this. If God is all-good and all-loving, He cannot be all-powerful because there is suffering and pain in the world. He wishes He could do something about it. He'd love if He could fix it for everybody, but the truth is He just can't. He's in heaven and He's kind of powerless to do anything about the pain and suffering. Or it may sound something like this. Perhaps God is all-powerful. Perhaps he does have all the ability in the world, and yet he sits up in heaven, 
And he looks down on the suffering of man and the suffering of woman and the suffering of children all over the world, and he says something like this. I could fix it if I wanted to, but I don't want to. And we conclude from that, well, then logically, if God is all-powerful, perhaps he isn't all-good and all-loving. Now, this is a logical argument, but the truth is, the logic of this argument hides behind a false principle. And the false principle is that you and I get to decide what good is. And you and I get to decide what loving is, and we get to push that idea onto God and then hold him to that standard of goodness that we have applied to him. You see, the truth is today, if you have a belief and a relationship with the God of this universe, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is all good and he is all loving and he is for you. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Because John chapter 3, verse 16 says that he so loved the world that he sent his only son into this world that we should not perish and that all who would believe in him would have everlasting life. So we know he's all good and he's all loving. Well, how do you know he's all powerful? Go no further than to read your Bible. The old preacher Charles Spurgeon had a story about a woman in Israel. She was in sanctuary worshiping with some other Jewish people there, and an earthquake hit. And all the young men of this church began to panic and get scared, and she just continued to pray and sing worship and sing psalms to God. And they said, how can you worship and pray at a time like this? She says, I take comfort in knowing I have a God that can shake the foundations of the world. You see, when suffering and pain gets put into proper biblical perspective, we have answers for it. But the truth is today... Satan and this world have a desire to shake your foundation and to instill fear in you that God either isn't for you or he isn't powerful enough to take care of you. Because the truth is today, as we approach the topic of pain and suffering, there is not one person in this room hearing my voice today that either isn't there right now or you've just been there. Or maybe you don't know it yet, but some of us are headed there. My old preacher used to say it like this. If you're a Christian, you're either going into the storm, you're in the storm, or you're coming out of the storm. But what the world wants us to believe today is that we can have both. We can have the relationship with God. We can have the all-good and the all-loving and the all-powerful God, but we don't have to have the storms with it. You see, that's what many of us today may be chasing. And if you're in this place today and you're hurting, I want to bring you some hope before we get into the Word of God today. And the Word of God is going to bring you more hope than I can ever bring you. But understand this. There is an answer to the question that plagues your soul while you suffer. There is a God who has the answer. And the really good news is that He wants you to know the answer. The Bible says He is not a God of confusion. He is not the author of confusion. If you're in this place today and you're struggling and you're hurting, let me give you some good news. Whatever your reasoning for coming here today, you came to the right place. Because there is a God with His hand open ready to take you places and ready to do things in your life. The question is, will you participate or are you here to simply consume? Are you here to participate or are you here as a bystander, as a watcher, as a consumer? Let's see what the Word of God has to say about suffering. I've talked long enough. Peter talked to us this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Peter, an apostle, the disciple of Jesus, the disciple who was the most vocal, the most bold in his faith. 
he writes this letter to this church that he was instrumental in planting in the first century. This was a church full of new Christians. And these Christians were undergoing persecution for their faith. They were undergoing trials and difficulties. These were new Christians who were suffering. And Peter writes this letter to them, and he says it this way. He says, dear friends, and i got to be honest, I'm in the NIV today. I love the NIV, but the old King James had it right when it used the word beloved for dear friends. If you remember, when Jesus was baptized, God's voice spoke from heaven over Jesus, and he said, this is my, he didn't call him a dear friend, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You see, the good news today is that when you grab Jesus' hand and you follow him, the benefits of God's love onto Jesus fall to you because you're adopted into the family. You become a child of God just like Jesus. The benefits of the Father roll to the children. Amen? This morning, if you're in Christ Jesus, you are the beloved of God. He is for you today. Peter says, dear friends, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate, there's that word, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Anybody looking to be overjoyed today? Man, I hope you didn't come to church today so you could fold your arms and curl your lips up and go, I ain't going to do it. I ain't going to be overjoyed. I'm here to consume. I ain't here to participate. You see, you may be looking to check a box, but God is looking to fill you with his joy. That's good news for hurting people, amen? He says, if you are insulted, you ever been insulted? Shoot, I think our church made topics a handful of times before they took it off the internet. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of God and of glory rests on you. And if you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Amazing they put meddler in that list. Don't know what that says about our social media consumption, but I'm just going to leave that there and preach that message another time. But look at this, verse 17. For it is time. There's an appointment. There's an alarm going off in your life. It is time for judgment to begin with God's household. Oh, you came to the right place today. Nobody said it'd be easy. But it's time for judgment to begin in God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And he quotes the Proverbs here. He says, if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will. That's heavy. It's heavy. If those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to two things their faithful creator, and to continue doing good. Can we pray this morning? God, this word is not cotton candy. This is a meal you've set before us today. And God, I believe the enemy right now sits at the door waiting for the wandering mind and the broken heart to shut off, to disconnect, to disengage, to consume. But God, this morning you are here to change the lives of participants. God, help us to participate in your word today. May your spirit speak to our hearts and move us and change us and challenge us and convict us. And God, if there be a non-believer in the room today, if there be a skeptic, if there be a person in hurting, in pain, in suffering today, may your word transform them from the inside out today. 
If there's a believer in this room who is far from you, God, their pain has driven them into isolation. God, may today be the day you reach your hand down and you grab them and you pull them up. God, may judgment start in the house of God today. And as we come through the waters, may you rescue us and bring us into a spirit of being overjoyed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Even the babies are saying amen this morning. We're going to have church today, all right? I want to talk to you about the power of expectation. Married people in the room, raise your hands. The power of expectation. Let me ask you, and this is rhetorical, so do not answer back and do not let your spouse see the look on your face. Have any of you ever walked into a marriage with a set of expectations that your spouse did not agree with or line up with? Now, most of us, when we start out, we think, all right, my marriage is going to be easy. And everybody tells me it's going to be hard. I remember back in 2008, before I got married to Mrs. Jackson, everybody said, now, Blake, get ready, because marriage is hard. This woman, great as she may be, will not meet every expectation you have. But, of course, they were all wrong, because they didn't know me, and they didn't know her. You see, our expectations were exactly the same. And marriage has been easy because we meet each other's every need. Amen? Y'all are looking at me going, no, you don't. <laughs> of course you don't. You see, expectation's a powerful thing. In the 1960s, there was a Harvard biologist, a doctor, a teacher at Harvard Medical School. And he gathered a group of new students together in his class. And he intended to perform an experiment, and he hypothesized that expectation was not only powerful, but contagious. So here's what he did. He took his students, and he divided them into two groups, one on this side, one on this side. And he assigned to each group of students a group of lab rats, a group of lab rats. Now, these lab rats were exactly the same in every way. They had not been bred any differently they were all of an almost equal intelligence. There was literally no difference. But what he told the students was this. He said, all right, group A, group B, you get this group of rats, and each of you is going to spend the next week training your rats to run this maze. And the maze is going to be the same for all the rats. And at the end of the week, we're going to time team A, and we're going to time team B, and we're going to see which group of rats can run this maze the fastest. You with me? Pretty simple experiment. But here's the catch. Though these rats were the same in every way, he told Team A, he said, hey, good news, Team A, you guys got the smart rats. You guys got the rats that have been bred for maze running. These rats are the elite, best of the best, top of the litter. Top. Chances are they're not going to learn real well and they're not going to perform real well. But I want you to do your best and I want you to train them. And each team did their very best to train each of their respective group of lab rats to run this maze. Now let me ask you today. At the end of the week, which group of rats ran the maze the fastest? How many of you think Team A? All right, Brian was here last night and heard the sermon, so y'all might be good if you want to get on his team, okay? How many of you think Team A? The rats they thought were the smart ones. All right, how many of you think Team B? Man, these dull ones. See, here's the amazing thing about expectation. These rats were the same in every way. One group was not faster than the other. But this team of scientists had been given an expectation that their rats would perform. So in their training and in their teaching of these rats, that expectation passed from Robert Rosenthal to the students to the rats. 
And these rats easily outperformed those in Team B, though they were the same in every way. And this was a groundbreaking experiment. In fact, the effect of the power of contagious expectation has become known as the Rosenthal effect years after this experiment was done. And he had to test this hypothesis on humans because that's what you do, right? Let's take it all the way. Let's see if this applies to humans. So he did the same thing. Goes to an elementary school, takes a group of students, tests their IQ. And they have a baseline. Each student gets their IQ tested. And then he randomly assigns them to team A of teachers over here or team B of teachers over here. Now the truth is, their IQs were all across the board. You had some smart ones over here. You had some whose IQ wasn't so high. Same on this side. The teams were even. But he told the teachers on Team A, he said, listen, we're giving you all the best and the brightest. These are the bright kids. Their IQs are off the chart. They are going to perform unbelievably this year. Teachers over here, he told them, listen, these are the kids with great personality and a lot of charisma. But they don't have the highest IQ, so good luck. Good luck teaching them this year. You're going to have to work extra hard. At the end of the year, the same students from each team had their IQs retested. The students on Team A, their IQ had increased significantly. Team B, almost exactly the same. What's the difference? The difference is that the power of the expectation of the teachers had nothing to do with the substance of the students. And it had everything to do with the approach of the authority. You with me? Their expectation of the performance was so strong that it passed on to the students and they literally got smarter. Whereas over here, these minimal expectations passed on to these students and they didn't grow. What I'm talking to you today is that the power of expectation in your life, for what your life looks like, what your job looks like, what your career looks like, what your marriage looks like, what your church looks like, what your relationship with God looks like, the power of your expectation is strong, it is pervasive, and it is contagious to those around you. The way we expect our life to go literally defines everything about how we approach every day of our life. What we expect to get out of this thing defines how we feel when we get the results. Is that making sense? See, I want you to follow me here because this is going to be important. Peter said to these suffering Christians... Dear friends, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you. You see, the verb he uses here for do not be is an indicative that they were already surprised. And what he was telling them is, hey, Christians, you got saved and you're surprised that you're suffering and you need to stop being surprised. What he was telling them is, you came into your relationship with Jesus Christ with a set of expectations. And those expectations are strong and pervasive. And when you come into relationship with somebody and that somebody does not meet your expectation, that creates a lot of conflict and a lot of dissonance in the relationship. Amen? Look no further than your marriage. No marriage is easy and it's never easy because all of us have unrealistic expectations for the other person. That's why it's always hard. But you see, there's a unique element to our relationship with God as Christians. When you and I get saved and come into relationship with Jesus Christ, we bring with us a set of expectations for how this relationship's going to work. But the problem with our pervasive, willful expectation is that they do not change God's mind. They do not bend His will. 
You see, when God created and formed you, the Bible said he did so with a specific purpose for you. And when you submit your life to Jesus Christ and you become a Christian, the truth is you can bring some expectations if you want to, but if you do it, you're going to find yourself surprised at some of the outcomes. And you may not know what to do with them. And that's called struggle. That's called pain. It's the expectation gap. This is not what I thought it was going to be. And if you wonder what this looks like in the church, look no further than this. Only about 50 to 60% of people who get baptized actually stick around. It's just true. Only about 20%, if you're generous, of youth children, youth that grow up in youth ministry and churches, stick around after they leave high school. Why is that? Why is the retention rate so low? It's because their expectation of God that they grow up with is not the God that they meet when they hit the real world. And that gap creates dissonance in their heart and soul. It creates conflict and they run from conflict because church, that's what we do. We run from conflict. Amen? None of us go looking for it. Peter says, do not be surprised when you suffer because God's doing something that isn't meeting your expectations. But perhaps today, if we can reform our expectations, we can align ourselves with God and there can be change in our life. Amen? And this is going to play out in your heart in a very specific and powerful way because if you are hurting and suffering today... When you line yourself up with God's expectations, what you find is that though the suffering may not end, your perception may change. And when your perception changes and lines up with the Father's, you can be joyful even in the midst of your suffering. See, there were three young men in Babylon thousands of years ago, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king of Babylon had an expectation that when the trumpet blew, every knee would bow at the idol that this king had made. But these three young men were not swayed or influenced by this king's expectation. When the trumpet blew, they stayed standing, young men. And the king threw them into a fire. And what's amazing is that when the king looked into the fiery furnace he had tossed them in, he threw in three men. But how many men did he see in their church? Y'all know this story. He said, what in the world? There's four men in the fire, and one of them looks like the Son of God. Amen. You see, the truth today is that if you align your expectations with God's will for your life, I cannot promise an end to the suffering, but what I can promise is that you will have God the Father with you in your suffering. And when God is with you, who can be against you? What do we got to be fearful for when God is with us? You see, there is a purpose of God in suffering. There is a purpose of God in suffering, and we have to understand this today. Let's go ahead and quash... The idea that a loving God would never will suffering. Can we do that? That's hard to do because that goes against our worldview, but let's go ahead and do it right now because when we suffer and people suffer, what we want to do is we want to let God off the hook and say, well, God wishes he could change it, but he just can't. Yet 1 Peter 4.19 says this, that those who suffer according to God's will, there it is, suffer according to God's will. Church, God wills periods of sufferings for Christians. Pastor Brian said it like this last week. I wrote it down because when you said it, it hit me right in the heart. He said that there is not one amount of suffering that crosses your life that did not cross the hand of God. It may be Satan doing it, but God allows Satan to do it. You say, how do you know that? Look at the book of Job. We get to see the picture of what it looks like. 
You see, God wills periods of suffering for Christians. And I don't want to miss this here because verse 19 gives us a hint of how we are to respond to suffering. We're going to talk about the mind and the heart, but let's just talk about the response today for a second. He says that those who suffer according to God's will, if you're suffering and you're hurting today, I'm talking to you. God's talking to you. There's two things you must do if you want to align yourself with God's expectation. If you're looking for joy today. Number one, commit yourselves to the faithful creator. Number two, continue to do good. Do you see it? The two C's. Pastor, I'm hurting today. I'm suffering today. What do I do? You commit yourself to God and you continue to do good. You see, church, it's rare to find a suffering, joyful Christian in the world, isn't it? When you see that person who is both suffering and joyful, we're like, whoa, this must be like a super Christian. They must have like super faith. I can never be like that. I wonder why it's so rare. Let me tell you why I think it's rare. When most Christians suffer, here's what we do. 1 Peter 4.19 says that when you suffer, you commit yourself to the Creator. But when we suffer, here's what most of us do. I'm hurting. I'm suffering. i got to pull back. i got to pull back. I just need time to heal. I need time to be by myself. I need to disconnect from the church and I need to disconnect from God and I just need to be with myself and my thoughts for a while and I just need to sort of distance myself because man when I'm hurting and I go to church sometimes the hurts even even stronger so I just got to disconnect and all this ministry that I'm doing all these good things that God has for me to do I cannot continue to do them I must stop doing them for a while because I'm hurting and I can't do this with all this pain in my life. The reason we don't see more suffering, joyful Christians in the world is because the Bible says that when we hurt, we commit to God and we continue to do good. But most of us, when we get hurt, we do this. i got to pull back from God and i got to pull back from ministry because I'm just hurting too bad. I just need to be alone with my hurt. You see, we've got the formula backwards. Do you see it? God wills periods of suffering for Christians. The question is, Why? What is it God is trying to do? What is it God is trying to do? I believe there's three things God is trying to do in suffering, and I'm going to move through them as quickly as I can. Number one, in our suffering, God shows us. He shows us. He uses our suffering to show us. What does He show us? Two things. Number one, God uses suffering to show us His glory. Look at 1 Peter 4.13. Rejoice in as much as you participate. Say the word participate. participate. You see, your worship today is participation. Some of us are hurting so bad we feel like we can't worship, but the truth is your joy comes not through disconnection, but through participation. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. You see, churches all across our country today are filled with consumers and watchers. What God's looking to do is transform participants. The question today is, will you commit, will you continue, and will you participate? If you say, no, I can't because I'm hurting too bad, then, then, then you're stuck. You are where you are. And God may leave you there until you make the decision to commit, to continue, and to participate. God uses suffering to show us his glory. I need to hear from God today because I'm hurting so bad. I need to hear from God today because I'm out of answers. The question is, will you participate? Because if you won't, you won't hear anything. 
Number two, God uses suffering to show us our problems. He uses suffering to show us our problems. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not take lightly the discipline of the Lord, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. And your suffering is disciplined. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? Church, this may not be for you today. You may be suffering today, and it has nothing to do with sin in your life. That was the case for Job. His friends were convinced he had sinned, but the truth was he had not. Not all suffering is because of sin, but church, for some of us, for some of us, our suffering and our pain is created by the decisions we keep making, by the habits we keep returning to. And trust me today, the Word of God is clear if you want to continue to make unhealthy and unbiblical decisions, God is happy to pull his hand of common grace off your life long enough to let you feel a little bit of hurt so that it will show you the truth about where you are. Remember the prodigal son. Where was he when his eyes were opened to the truth of his problems? He was eating the pig slop. Because he had squandered his father's inheritance. He had run from the house of God. He was eating the food the pigs eat. And all of a sudden, he looked down and realized, I'm eating pig slop. The servants in my father's house have it better than this. They get three square meals a day. I'm going to return home and serve my father. I'm going to commit myself to my creator, and I'm going to continue to do what's right. His eyes were open to his problems, and he ran to the father. You see, this morning, perhaps you're suffering because of the decisions you've made. The good news for you is that there's a father waiting on you to cross that line, cross that hill, come home. Lay those mistakes down at the foot of the cross, give them to Jesus, walk away from him. Your life can be different, but for some of us in the room, your life won't be different until you start making some different decisions. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. God uses suffering to show us his glory, and he uses suffering to show us our problems. So God uses suffering to show. What else does he use it for? What other purpose could there be? He also uses suffering to grow us. Say grow. You see, church, healthy things grow. Amen? Plants that are alive grow. Animals that are alive grow. Children that are alive grow. And sometimes, and it's an unfortunate reality that we live in, but the truth is God often uses suffering to grow us. Look what he says in 1 Peter 4.17. He said, it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. Time for judgment to begin with God's household. Now, let me ask you this. And there's a lot of visitors here today, so I would love for you visitors to participate. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or nothing like that. Nothing awkward. I'm just curious. Did anybody come to Eastland today because you were excited to come to a church that's going to judge you? Anybody? Like, man, I was excited when that alarm went off because I was looking for a judgmental church. I was looking for a church that knew my sin and was going to point it out and roll me up to the front and list it all off so they could all judge me. I bet none of you today came for that. Because the truth is, nobody's looking for a judgmental church. And those churches do exist, don't they? Some of, some of us have been there before. God's mad at you. You're a sinner. God's ready to strike you down if you don't do things his way. Some of us have been brought up in a gospel that sounded like that. And the truth is, it's no gospel at all. You see, the pain and the suffering that comes from the judgment in this scripture is not the type of judgment that says, you're bad and I don't love you. Let me explain to you what this looks like. I have four children, three daughters. 
One of my daughters, they're not in here today, they're in Life Kids, so I'm not going to tell you which one it was. One of my daughters yesterday had an attitude problem. And we were doing a work day here at the church. Some of y'all know which one it was because you know my kids. And we were doing a work day here at the church. We had work to do. The air conditioner back there wasn't working. It was hot. We were sweating our souls out. We were working, and she just wasn't into it. And she had this attitude problem, and she'd had the attitude problem the night before, and I think maybe the year before, and I think pretty much since she was born, she had this attitude problem. I think it's just innate, all right? And I love my daughter. Church, I love my children, and so do you. And I love my daughter so much that I got to the place where I could no longer reason her out of her attitude. You know what I'm talking about? We had discussed it. We had talked about it. I had threatened her. And yet the attitude persisted. So let me tell you what I did. And I know that we're streaming on the internet, so I'm going to use very vague language that you Christians are going to understand. I applied to my daughter some very specific, momentary, biblical suffering. (laughs) My hand, her backside. It was loving, it was quick, it was not done in anger. Please don't call CPS, all right? But it was what she needed. And it was amazing the difference in the before and after this little momentary period of suffering. There was crying, there were tears, might have been a red spot that disappeared after a couple minutes. But post-suffering, this was a different kid. Because the truth is, we can sometimes get so deep into our mess that it takes the hand of God to wake us up and bring us out and say, i got to do something different now. And that's what growth looks like, church. Sometimes we can simply hear the word and we can grow. Sometimes the parent tells the child what to do and the child does it, and that's fantastic when it works that way. Tell me what it's like because I don't know. But maybe it works that way. But for some of us, God has to wake us up with momentary suffering in order to grow us. When he says it's time for judgment to begin in the house of God, what he means by that is when we walk into this church and we gather around believers and we hear the word of God, that means that I take inventory of my life and my attitude and my expectations. You see, that's what it means to participate. That's what it means to participate. This is about me and it's about you today. And I'm willing to hear it, and I'm willing to make changes today. You see, what happened yesterday to my daughter worked because she became a participant. Once the pain hit, she knew she had to change. And change she did. question is, will you? You see, to attempt faith without suffering, which is what many of us do, to attempt faith without suffering is to remove God's primary instrument from growth in my life. To attempt to do this the easy way is to remove God's primary instrument for growth in my life. Church, God uses suffering to show us his glory in my problems. He uses suffering to grow me. Church, last one, he uses suffering to know me. He shows, he grows, and he knows. Stay with me for a second. I know the band's moving around. Y'all stay with me. How many of you have ever heard this before? Being a Christian is not about religion, it's about relationship. It's about relationship. And we know what that means. If you've ever grown up in a church that was all about religion, it was all about the outside, wasn't it? What are you wearing? 
How do you present yourself? What version of the Bible do you use? Are you doing this? Are you not doing that? We used to say it this way in the old Southern Baptist world. We don't drink, smoke, or chew or go with those who do. That's just how it was. That's what religion was. God's going to be happy with me when the outside looks good. But truth, uh, church, we learn the truth when we understand that God doesn't work primarily on the outside first. He starts on the inside. Amen? He starts with your expectation. God uses suffering to know us. And the word know is specific here. See, I know some things. And I look across the room today, and some of you, I know some things about you. Some of you, I know some things about you. Some of you, I know your name. I've talked to you. I know that you've got children. I, I, I know you. If I see you in Walmart, I'll, I'll wave at you. You're not one of the people I'll run the other way and hope they didn't see me. I won't pretend to be on my phone. I know you. I'll talk to you. But some of you today, I know you because we've walked through the fire together. Some of you today, I know because you've shared with me your struggles and I've shared with you my struggles. You see, in Genesis when God created Eve for Adam and Adam looked upon her and said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, the Bible says that Adam knew Eve and she produced a son. You see, the idea of knowledge here is a knowledge that reproduces because it's a relationship. See, I know my wife and my wife knows me. My fear today, church, this is my fear as a preacher. We may have a room full of people right now who know God. I know him. I know the, I know the 66 books of the Bible. I, I know what the Bible says. I've heard the gospel. I know God. I know God. But do you know God? And more importantly, does he know you? You see, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that the day comes when every one of us are going to stand before God the Father and we're going to give an account for our life. And there are going to be many people who look just like me and look just like you. They preach, they teach, they've got the religion thing down pat. And Jesus is going to look at them and say, I never knew you. doesn't mean he doesn't know who you are. It means he doesn't know you. Because you didn't go through the fire with him. You didn't walk with him. Church, today, if you leave knowing some things but not knowing Jesus and Jesus not knowing you, you've missed it. You've missed it today. And I've missed it today. It says in 1 Peter 4.13, Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Some of us today want the glory, but we don't want to participate. And we wonder why we come into church and we know it in our head, but we know nothing in our heart. And we're distant and we're separate and we stay stuck in the same mess for years and years. Church, it is not God's will that you stay stuck knowing nothing of God's will for your life and your heart. It is not God's will for your life. Look at what Paul said in Philippians, my last scripture. Hear this. Hear this today. He said, I want to know Christ. Paul said, I want to know Christ. Not know of Him, but know Him. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection. How many of us are there? I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Raise your hand if that's what you want. You can't get saved without knowing the power of His resurrection because if you don't know the power of His resurrection, you're not saved. Because that wasn't you who came up out of that grave when you were baptized in that water. That was the new you. That's resurrection. 
Same thing that happened to Jesus, his body happened to your spirit when you got saved. I want to know the power of his resurrection. But church, the tragedy that some of us leave it there. And we don't grow because we don't know anything beyond that. Paul said, I want to know him. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. And the participation in his suffering. And that's where some of us go, well... I don't know if I can walk with a God and worship a God and be close with a God and know a God that wants suffering. How could he want that? Church, for many of us, he wants it because he wants me and he wants you to know him. And you can't know Jesus if you're looking for a Jesus who didn't suffer. Because church, if he didn't suffer, you and I are hopeless today. If he didn't suffer, you and I are hopeless today. And he said in Matthew 6, 24, that he was going to suffer. He said, if any man or woman would come after me, let him deny himself. You know what it means to deny yourself? It means to take your expectation for what the Christian life should look like. And to lay it down and leave it there. Say, my expectation for the American dream, for a four-bedroom house, a new car, and an easy life, no suffering, and a little Jesus on the side a couple days a week to make me feel better, you lay that down and you leave it there because that's not what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus said, you want to know him, you want to follow him, you take up your cross, deny yourself, and you follow him. Church, there is no formula for a blessed life with the power of Jesus' resurrection that avoids the hard stuff. There just isn't one. And the truth is today, you know it. And I know it because none of us have figured out how to avoid suffering. And the problem of the question of evil today, if God is good and loving, how could there be all this suffering? You may buy into that, but here's the problem with it. Even if you leave God at the altar and walk away and distance yourself, you've still got all the suffering. You haven't done any better. You're still suffering. There's not an atheist out there overjoyed because they don't have God in their life. They suffer just like the rest of us do. You know what the difference is from the atheist or the unbeliever or the junkie digging through the dumpster or the single mother struggling with life or the religious person coming into church every week, never finding it? You know what the difference is? It's not that we don't suffer. It's that when we suffer, we don't do it alone. We don't do it alone. And through that suffering... He shows us his glory, and we find joy. Clarence Anderson, Pastor Brian's father, had a heart cath this morning. About seven months ago, on a Saturday afternoon, he buried his wife, his life partner, for more than 60 years. He went home, he sat there for a while, and he came back to church, and he participated. You see, church, what God is calling you to is not impossible. With Jesus, all things are possible. The question is not, is it possible to suffer and have joy? The question is, will you participate so that you can know him? You see, some of you are hurting today, and you're tired of hurting. And I can't promise you that if you'll come to this altar and pray that the hurt goes away. What I can promise you is that if you will come to this altar and pray, and you will legitimately 
don't just say it, but know it, you will legitimately lay down your expectations for what the good life should look like, and you will align yourself with Jesus. I'm telling you, hurting friend today, what you will find is that though the hurt may continue, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. We need strong churches today because those people out there are suffering. And when they watch us suffer, they want to see if there's a difference. Amen? May there be a difference in this place today. Let's.